Blockchain Advisor is the go-to podcast that bridges the gap between traditional investing and digital assets. The podcast covers a wide range of topics, including stocks, bonds, and commodities, the cryptocurrencies listed on Coinbase, and the Grayscale Investment Trusts. We're going to help you build an elegant portfolio of digital assets from the perspective of an options market maker and registered investment advisor. My name is Bill Uliveri, and I'm the Blockchain Advisor. Good afternoon. I'm so excited to be here with Eric Gravengard, CEO of Athena Bitcoin Global. Uh, as you can see, Eric, I've got my Athena Christmas swag on that Gil gave me. Uh, Love this, it. Is, this is not a paid advertisement. I don't receive any royalties or bonuses uh, from Athena, but I, uh, in full disclosure, I am a shareholder because I believe in what you guys are doing and the mission. So uh, with us today is Eric. Let, Eric, I just want to just dive right in, okay? Uh, yeah. And talk about uh, what you've been doing, you know, give us a little background on your experiences as an options trader. You know, we have a very similar background. So tell us about uh, trading puts, calls, Delta Gamma and all those things. And what, you know, how did you learn about Bitcoin? And let's just go back, you know, 20 years or so. Yeah, right. So let's see. Uh, Ten years ago, I was working for Chicago Trading Company, CTC, and I was running their Delta One book. So just for the people who don't, you know, don't trade options. Uh, CTC makes markets in things called options, puts calls for the S&P 500, for metals, uh, interest rate products, uh, you name it. And we have a large floor, CTC has a large floor presence. And so when someone would buy, let's say buy calls uh, in the S&P 500 on the floor, someone would have to then sell futures against that position. So you buy call, sell future, and what we started to do at CTC was to internalize all of those trades. So instead of trading with the open market, the floor trader would buy his calls, sell his futures, and I would be the one that would be buying the futures from him. So now I have futures and maybe another trader wants to buy futures and then they sell them to him. So it's what's called internalization. So I ran all the internalization for CTC and in 2013, uh, I felt I had done everything I needed to do at CTC, was looking for a bigger challenge, maybe just repeating what I'd already done there. And so uh, I quit. And on the way out, you know, they sit you down and they say, great, uh, you know, you're obviously a very valuable employee. We're sorry to let you go, but you know, you're quitting. So we're going to enforce our non-compete against you. And then they have to make up a number. And so for me, it was, I forget exactly how many months, but basically took me off of the job market for, you know, much of the rest of the year. And so they're going to pay me to not work. And so anyway, I, I was like, this is great. This is as expected because I universal I basic like, income. Okay. <laughs> right. I was like, I knew I'm a valuable member of your team. And I think we all know that like I could walk across the street and replicate this trade for your biggest competitor and that they will have all the advantages that you have had for the last few years. And they knew that. And I knew that. And so anyway, they took me off the market and I was like, this is great. And so I go back and I, you know, I have young kids, uh, at the time. And I was like, great, we're going to the zoo. And, you know, we went to the zoo and then the following day I was like, maybe we'll go to the aquarium. And my wife was like, no, you can't do this. And I was like, why, why not? And what I realized was like, you know, I, I can't just do only fun things with the kids 
and then leave her to do all of the not fun things with the kids. Like that's not a, that's not a marriage and that's not like splitting responsibilities. So she's like, you need to go find some place to like be during the day. And I was like, okay, I, I can take that feedback. And so I did. So I, I started working at a co-working uh, place where I was like, I'm going to learn other, a new computer language. And anyway, the guy who sits ne down next to me wants to talk about Bitcoin all day long. And I was like, I, I don't, I mean, I'm in finance, but like, I don't know anything about Bitcoin. I didn't want to say I didn't know anything about Bitcoin. So I'm like Googling it in the corner, trying to make sure that browser window is really small. So he doesn't see that. I don't know what he's talking about. And then I start to like have an almost intelligent conversation about Bitcoin, but I realized like this guy knows way too much. And so anyway, it got in my head and that was 2013, like April. And I don't know, by, so by the end of the year, I was starting my new job. I had bought some Bitcoin over the summer, but I mostly forgot about them. So someone called me up in January of 2014. It was like, Eric, how are those Bitcoin doing? And I was like, wait, what are you talking about? Like, did I just lose all my money? And they're like, no, you idiot. Like, they're like $1,000 each now. And I was like, whoa, that's cool. They're like, wait, how many did you buy? I was like, well, I mean, you know, I, I kind of bought, you know. Not gonna I bought, I bought 100 and they're like why did you buy 100 i was like i didn't really know what else to do and i wanted to get involved so i bought some and they're like oh well you're you're doing quite well now and i'm like oh then there's something going on here and i want to figure out what it is and it took a couple of years to figure out what it was that i actually wanted to do uh along the way met the people that i would go on to co-found athena with uh gil valentine brian schwartz eddie winehouse uh, they all sort of showed up at the right amount of time and said, look, we think that you understand Bitcoin and we want to do something together. And so we, we bought our first Bitcoin ATM in the summer of 2014 and we installed it the day after Thanksgiving. Wow. And, uh, that was the genesis of, you know, this idea that we want to make Bitcoin more accessible and easier to use for people. And so Athena's sort of been doing that for the last, I guess it's, you know, six and a half years, making Bitcoin more accessible first in the U S and then starting about four years ago in Latin America. And then along the way, a funny thing happened. A friend of mine from high school called and said, Hey, can you bring a Bitcoin ATM to El Salvador? And I was like, you know, why? He's like, well, a friend of mine just did a, uh, you know, I got a charity, a charity, uh, set up there and they just got a donation in Bitcoin. And I was like, okay, great. And so despite the fact that everyone was yelling at me, like, Eric, please don't do this. Like <laughs> we, we need to invest in our existing markets. This is a waste of time. This is a waste of money. I don't know why we're doing it. I was like, I don't know. Like it, this is me being an options trader. I, I like buying options. I like to have, I like being long gamma. And this was a, this was a teeny, this was a, let's buy one machine. It'll cost me $2,000 to fly to, uh, El Salvador, uh, with somebody else and a tool bag and install it and let's just do it. And so right. we did it. And that machine, uh, went on to like, you know, helped to convince a nation that they should have Bitcoin as legal tender. Now, obviously there's a lot more to it than just one mm -hmm. Bitcoin ATM, but uh, our Bitcoin ATM in El Zante, El Salvador, was definitely part of the origin story of like, how does a nation go on to accept Bitcoin? Um, so like that was sort of the, the structure that we 
we wanted to foster at Athena of how do we buy these like small options that, that might pay off. Uh, and it turns out that's worked out really well for us. Um, but we'll, well see. Yeah, I mean, you're, you guys are, you're, you know, crypto Twitter was all lit up with with you guys and the whole El Salvador thing, which is really exciting. But let me just go back a little bit. So your background is as a, as a, floor, as a trader, you're managing positions, Delta One, Delta Neutral trading off the floor. Maybe the traders that were in the pit may or may not have known immediately that you were actually just internalizing the order flow. I'm sure you're internalizing like a lot of other stuff. But so you, Gil Valentine is a former floor trader and DPM trader at the Chicago Board Options Exchange. That's where I hung my hat since 1981. You have a background in options trading. Eddie Winehouse is an attorney, and Brian Schwartz, I think, had a background in IT, more of an IT guy, I think. So, like, why not just start a hedge fund? Why not do what with the other, you know, try to raise assets under management and be doing, you know, a billion AUM or whatever, taking your two and twenty. That that was a, that's a great question. Uh, and to be honest, like, I don't have a great answer as to why, you know, essentially, what were basically three options traders and a guy who sold software to options traders somehow ended up in the ATM space. What I will say is that I did try my hand at running a hedge fund and, you know, we would, I would go into meetings and try to raise, you know, uh, capital for the, for the fund. And people would say, well, maybe, I don't know. And so during all of that maybes and I don't knows, we bought an ATM. Okay. And the ATM started making money. And, you know, like I said, I have a young family and making money is kind of an important role for, you know, the husband dad to do sometimes. And so those were making money. And that was what was opening up, you know, starting, you know, having meetings. Mm -hmm. And at some point we're like, you know what, I think that it's easier for us to run the ATMs than it is to do the hedge fund. And I think that was all timing and focus. Sure. Uh, the ATMs didn't require the world to change. The world was already ready for them. Not, not in like the way the world is ready for them now, but sure, sure. every time we put out an ATM, there was a line of people waiting to use it. So that's a powerful thing uh, when you don't have to like work very hard for customers. Whereas the hedge fund got a ton of meetings and a lot of waiting, I and totally waiting get it. for that, like waiting for the world to change where someone was ready to put in the check. Um, so, I mean, I think other people ended up being very successful in the hedge fund space, obviously. Uh, other people have been very successful in the ATM space, but like we were really trying to just find our way in this crazy world of you know, the world is changing. And so who you know at the right moment is super important because it's when they're ready to enter the space and can and know to talk, talk to you because there's a trust relationship. Sure. And I think that was just really special. And my dad's helped me to understand that like so much of business is timing, but it's also trust. And people in times of like uncertainty, they call people they know and they call people they trust. And that's when a lot of opportunities are going to come your way is so you just have to be able to be ready for when that call happens um which means you know you do have to manage your you know manage your position so that uh you know you don't have this huge theta decay that will get you out of the position sure. you know before you're actually ready you have to you have to have staying power 
um, and, you know, have the right trade, but then, you know, there'll come a time, hopefully there'll come a time for you when, you know, there is that opportunity. You have to, uh, you know, to step up and sure. take advantage of it. Well, let me ask you this then, since you brought up the word theta and making sure that your theta decay, your expenses are not exceeding what your net worth is and not having to throw furniture into the fireplace to stay lit and warm. What, what kind of steps did Athena take during, say, crypto winter, right? If the, after the mercantile listed uh, Bitcoin, it was like downhill for almost a year, you know, maybe 10 months. And it was pretty brutal. Uh, the crypto winter, I remember, uh, you know, Gil passing out little stickers about the crypto winter. And but so like what, what did you what actionable items did you guys do to maintain, you know, your theta to keeping your theta or your decay to, to a minimum? Yeah, no, that was a really challenging period for us in a variety of ways. Like we had entered that period with a lot of optimism of we're going to do a bunch of interesting things. Let's expand here. Let's expand there. Let's put our hat into this ring, that ring. Let's try co-working, which is something you helped us work on. Just because there's so much activity in, in Bitcoin and we, I, we felt a need for community. And then we had to scale back a lot of those ambitions and, you know, wait it out. Um, and that's, you know, those are some hard decisions to make. Who do we keep? Who do we not? What's core? What, what is the option, uh, value of something and what do we want to keep, um, you know, on the books, you know, so we kept a little bit of presence in Argentina. We kept a little bit of presence in Colombia. We cut our presence in Mexico. Um, and then we, you know, scaled back what we were doing in the U S with, you know, about half of the staff, uh, that we were carrying, you know, and there were some lean times, but, uh, you know, to that point, like we did keep the option in Colombia open and it turns out that our friends in Colombia that we kept, uh, friendly with turned out to be a huge, you know, driver of our success in El Salvador coming into 2021, we didn't have a wallet product. We didn't have a POS system, but you know, after we started to realize what the opportunity was in El Salvador, we started calling people and we're like, do you guys still have that point of sale device mm -hmm. that like, I think we experimented with two years ago. They're like, yeah, we still have it. <laughs> and then we, you know, we, we didn't ask the question like, is it, does it work? <laughs> they're like, sure. Let's go. 200 like, of them. <laughs> right. They're like, we, yes. They're like, we have that many. And we're like, great. Can you get on an airplane? And we're like, well, not with that many. And we're like, well, how many can you bring? And they're like, okay, fine. We have 40. And we're like, great. Get on an airplane with the 40. We'll see you in San Salvador, you know, next week. And we're like, they're like, okay. So they did. They showed up. Again, when, when you have these opportunities, you call people you trust and know. And next thing you know, like, great. We've got the, we have the ATMs and we have the POS and they're all showing up and lo and behold, there's a wallet that we can adapt to meet the needs of the government of El Salvador and their wallet project. And mm -hmm. so next thing you know, we've got ATMs, point of sale and a wallet all deployed in El Salvador on September 7th and ready, almost ready to, you know, digitize their economy. That's a great story. Um, it, and so yet this trustless protocol still needs the trust factor behind and dealing, uh, which is great. And you got to be ready to show up with that crazy phone call at two in the morning or five in the afternoon saying, hey, can you meet us in San Salvador with 40 point of sale machines? Like right. that's like the you, craziest thing ever. And, 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 and right. And everyone's like, wait, why? Who? <laughs> and you're like, well, look, we knew them and they knew us. And so we yeah. just did it. Yeah. And so, 
right. in, it's all about trust. In comparing and contrasting setting up an ATM uh, business or uh, units in El Salvador versus, say, your experiences here in the United States, can you give us one or two stories of like a really good event and then things like, I'm going to look back on this time and say this was the craziest part of my life setting up a machine in blank, you know, Akron, Ohio or or Oklahoma, like the crate. You like, know, I, the the U.S. Uh, business for us was always like we're in we're in convenience stores. And so it was a lot of just learning about gas station, gas station operators. You know, most of them don't have like offices or, mm -hmm. you know, like office space within, you know, a small convenience store. So, you know, we got, I got very good at, uh, you know, opening up a machine that might have like a problem with the bill acceptor. And so, you know, occasionally I would have to go and fix it. And when you open up a bill acceptor, it's full of bills. And so, you know, I walk into a convenience store, Oh, just here to fix the paper or, you know, change the, you know, do something. And I would like announce that and everyone would be like, why are you announcing that? Then open the machine, grab the thing that holds all the money. Sometimes, you know, 10,000, thousands of dollars. Right. And then sneak off into the beer cooler, which uh, is actually the largest storage room in a convenience store usually. Uh, so like, you know, open the door, end up in the refrigerator uh, with maybe like a flashlight, like trying to like empty all the bills, figure out why it's not working stuff all the bills into my backpack and then walk back to the machine knowing that there's like, you know, $20,000 now stuffed into my backpack. And, uh, I'm freezing cold, even though it's like the summer in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm sure. freezing because I've been in a beer cooler fixing all this, stick the thing back in while my glasses are all fogged up, lock the machine up and then run back out to my rental car. Um, all while like, you know, knowing that like at least one person there would be like, Oh, I'm sorry. Did you say you have, $20,000 in your backpack. Can I see it? And like, yeah. no, 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 no. I'm, I'm just here to change the paper. You know, that was, the, that was the business, uh, you know, for a while. Wow. Um, now, you know, when we look at like, you know, where are the machines located these days, uh, we still have a lot of convenience stores in the United States. Uh, but then, you know, when we're in El Salvador, uh, and places like that, like we're in these beautiful malls, and uh, the government of El Salvador built these beautiful Chivo points, mm -hmm. which are these freestanding concrete structures in you know town plazas where people can go and get advice on how to use the wallet or how does Bitcoin work? Or there's an ATM that you know someone will help them uh, use. And now that our machines are in these beautiful places like that. And I saw the uh, pictures there. It's gorgeous. Yeah, and you know, and the um, the uh, you know, and, and you know, and then there's armored car people that you know do all of the things that we had to do, but no, it's it's, it's just been a great experience, you know, being in El Salvador uh, and having people like start to understand that you know what it is we do is is way more important than, you know, being in a dingy, convenience store. It's, you don't have to answer this question. Yeah. Um, you never actually you never have to answer any of my questions. But what is the incentive? Like when you first walk up to a convenience store or a gas station, and you know they're They've got their business model. You know, maybe the gas is uh, break even or they make a little bit of money, but they really make the money on all the energy drinks and swag by the front counter. So what is your sales pitch? What is the what's the incentive for someone to say, OK, you can get a Sawzall, a Milwaukee Sawzall, cut a hole in our, our wall, put it in an ATM. Like what kind of monetary incentive or if you can discuss that, I'd, I'd be curious to know. Yeah, so we pay 
we pay landlords uh, for rent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my pitch a few years ago was, look, you have this pallet of, you know, water. It's just sitting there. How much water do you sell a day? And, you know, you're selling them for a dollar a piece. Uh, you're probably selling what, like 10 waters a day? And he's like, yeah, okay, I sell about 10 waters a day. I'm like, great. Uh, so that's, you know, that's 300 bucks a month for that amount of floor space. What if I paid you 400 bucks a month for that same amount of floor space? And we're going to put a Bitcoin ATM there. And maybe the Bitcoin ATM customers will also come in and they'll buy a candy bar from you. So you're going to be better off uh, than having this pallet of water. And like that was the pitch. These days, all the convenience store owners, they already know the Bitcoin ATMs. They know that, yes, they're a good source of, they're, they're good floor space because, sure. you know, yes, uh, the operator is going to pay them, you know, a couple hundred bucks a month. And, you know, they, they know that the customers will come in, they will go to the, the Bitcoin ATM. And if you put the right merchandise next to it, you can make a sale uh, on that. Um, you know, for a long time, our, our terms of service said, please don't park uh, in front of the pumps if you're, you know, if you're not buying gas, because people would, they would drive up to the gas station, leave their car, come in, get Bitcoin, and then leave without buying any gas. And so, no, like now we're like better tenants. We understand like, here, put these, put this type of food next to it, you know, try to convert, you know, the people that come in for Bitcoin for this, because what we sell is convenience. And, you know, that's what, that's what people want with the Bitcoin ATM. They want to sure. be convenient. Um, you know, they're not wandering into a gas station thinking, oh, maybe I'll put $100 into Bitcoin today just because of the machines here. Sure. They're looking online, figuring out where the different machines are, who has the best rate or who's closest to me or whatever, you know, they find important. And then they're, uh, they're going there. So that's, that's what's important to our clients um, who use the machines. And so we want to make sure that that's aligned with, you know, our landlords who are, who are giving up, you know, uh, floor space that they really could be you know, replacing with the pallet full of, uh, you know, the water bottles, sure. um, which did make money for them. Right, right. And so uh, along the journey in the ATM machine, I mean, one of the benefits of Bitcoin is that, you know, that once the transaction is sent, I mean, it's done. There's no chargebacks. There's no calling American Express and trying to get a refund for something you may have already shipped. Did you find for the most part that that worked okay for you? Did you get phone calls from people saying, hey, you know, I, I, I just text message on my phone and I don't know what this is or who you are. And like there was that kind of customer service obstacle. Is that the right word for it? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people that ended up at the Bitcoin ATMs were like, OK, I want to buy Bitcoin. I looked it up online and I think I understand what's going on. But do they? And so they would put their hundred dollars in. They would, uh, you know, they would have downloaded a wallet. They put their hundred dollars in. They get it, and then they have this moment. They're like, "What have I done? I've just put a hundred dollars into this machine, and now my phone says that I own, you know, back in the day, a quarter Bitcoin. Uh -huh. Like, what have I done?" And then they would call us and they would ask us these questions, and we're like, "I'm sorry, is there was there a problem? Did you not get the Bitcoin?" Right. Uh, and they're like, no, I think I did. And so we, you know, I, our customer service team, you know, like wouldn't know how to answer those questions. Sure. Uh, we would also get the people that, you know, they, you know, they would lose their, they would lose their, their keys and all kinds of other things. I'm like, well, you know, you have to, you have to make sure that you know how to, how this works. We had one person that was in a car accident and they had a paper key. 
they had asked for the machine to give them a paper key, which mm -hmm. are these wallets that only exist on this piece of paper. And it has a public key and a private key. Don't show anyone the, the private key or they'll steal your money. Uh, but then he was in a car accident. And he's like, do you guys have a copy of that? And we're like, no, we very specifically don't keep a copy of your private key. That's yours. And we sold mm -hmm. it to you. And it, it does have $200 of Bitcoin on it. And he's like, well, I, can I get it back? And we're like, well, what happened to the car? He's like, well, they towed it. And I'm like, well, you need to go get it. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, I don't know how you fight your way uh, into the tow yard uh, after this accident, but you need to go find it. Um, but we had, you know, like uh, other uh, other people lose private keys mm -hmm. um, along the way. That happens a lot less now. I think the wallet technology is so much better. Uh, the apps are just so much easier to use. Sure. In the early days of Bitcoin, the people that, that did it were, you know, nerds. They really understood, you know, they had read, they know all things about the protocol mm -hmm. and everything else. But what they didn't know is like how to explain that to someone who, you know, has not read all of those things. Sure. And he really doesn't care about, you know, confirm. I mean, we might think about confirmations, but we don't, I mean, that's not a, like we needed the user interface to get so much better. Just like we need the user interface on email yep, to not talk so much about mail servers and all these other concepts. Like now we don't think about any, we don't, we've never thought about how does my mail get from here to there. Yeah, right. And we think, you know, only about the highest level things like, you know, sent, not sent, read, not read. The AI thinks this is important for me to read. The AI thinks that this is a uh, spam and I should not read it at all. I mean, those are the things we think about in email. And I think those are the things that are now way higher up in the, like when I use a Bitcoin wallet, they, they feel less mechanical of transactions and things like that. And I remember uploading and creating my first website using HTTP, right, using the actual editor in some program called Hot Dog. So I would save it on my laptop or my desktop and FTP it to whoever it was uh, if, and then look at it. You know, it's just basically the, you know, the most simple kind of website. And I remember when uh, it wasn't Netscape, but it was like Net Objects Fusion came up with like this object-based program that I could just drag and drop these blocks and enter the text and it just made it look super magical. And by the time I got to use that, there were already other advances in technology and website development. So I imagine the whole user interface and everything with, with the Bitcoin wallets is, is experiencing that same kind of evolution. Yeah. And that's really helped like our business uh, just be, be better at, at doing what we want to do, which is offer convenience and not, you know, this other uh, dimension of like customer service. And, you know, we want to make Bitcoin accessible. All right, so let's going forward. All right, so what is your grand vision or what is your vision for Athena going forward? And I did see a an article or a quick post on RURU Ruru or something and, yeah. I, and I don't I don't know what that is. I didn't I didn't okay. download the whole thing. So tell us a little bit about like where you guys are at today, technology and and then what you see as the vision for for Athena. Yeah. So, you know, we've ended up with this great product which is a digital economy in a box. And I love it that. combines the, the ATMs, the point of sale, and a wallet. And the wallet holds the two best currencies in the world. It holds US dollars and Bitcoin. 
and we can all debate or Bitcoiners can debate as to which one is the better currency, but uh, it holds those two currencies and allows you to spend it at stores, send it to friends, receive it from remittances or go to an ATM and cash out. And we think that those are the main components you need to build trust in Bitcoin as an asset, in the wallet infrastructure, so that you can feel comfortable, especially for people who have never had a balance. Mm -hmm. You can feel comfortable that you know the phone, which says you have 30 bucks, actually means you have 30 bucks. And if you own Bitcoin, maybe you have 31 bucks, maybe you have 29 bucks. It's going to change, mm -hmm. um, but like you can actually know that that's real. And so when someone sends you $5, great. My phone says I just got $5 and that's like important in helping people to build trust. So we have this product that we've deployed once in El Salvador and we call it Ruru, which uh, gets to that owl Athena myth that's our namesake. So, you know, Athena, Greek goddess of wisdom, war, and money. And we looked around the world for other instances of that sort of same combination. And we found sort of the, the same mythology in uh, Maori culture of uh, New Zealand. And their word for owl is ruru and gets to that same Athena myth, uh, the, you know, the goddess of those same things. So we just found it fascinating that there was, uh, you know, sort of the same idea of, you know, the goddess of war and wisdom, you know, exists all throughout, you know, societies that, to be honest, I don't know how much conversation there were between the ancient Greeks and the Maoris, mm -hmm. maybe none, maybe more than we thought, but I don't know. Um, but they had the same ideas around, you know, these are things that are joined. And so we just liked that. And we liked that it was, you know, short and, and quick and, you know, it doesn't mean something offensive in some other language, as far as we can tell. <laughs> this is important because we're, we're absolutely, you know, committed to bringing this worldwide. So we liked Ruru uh, from that. So it is a digital economy in a box that we can, you know, bring to other places. So then the question is, where do we bring it? And so we're in talks with other governments, non-governmental organizations, banks about how can we bring this idea of a digital economy, a wallet with dollars and Bitcoin supported by point of sale and ATMs to their constituency, whether that's their citizens or their banking customers or, you know, some population that they're trying to serve with greater financial access. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you look at a country like El Salvador, it had 30% of its country over 15 had a bank account. And now there's 4 million Chivo accounts for 6 million people. Wow. And so how can we do that again somewhere else? So, you know, elsewhere in Latin America, there are similar numbers. You know, I think Panama has 50% of their population has a bank account. Honduras, Guatemala have numbers similar to El Salvador's. And this is 20 years after like the fintech revolution started. Uh, if you look at PayPal, Elon Musk changed the name to PayPal in 2001, I think. And uh, he took over as CEO from Peter Thiel. And I would say like, that was like a seminal moment in the early days of FinTech, but it's 20 years later 
and you still can't link your PayPal account to your Salvadoran bank account. Wow. Even That's though crazy. I mean, El Salvador's had a, has a dollarized economy since so that bank account was in three or something, right? I, it was the same time period, 2001. Yeah. yeah. So during that entire period, you still can't do it. So when you want to talk about fake internet money, uh, I always say like, you know, fake internet money is a dollar PayPal balance uh, to someone that lives in El Salvador because you're allowed to have a PayPal account. You can have a PayPal account in El Salvador. Right. And you can say, look, I live in El Salvador. Here's my documentation. Great. Uh, I'm a software, you know, I need to buy some software development. I'm going to pay you, you know, how does $10 an hour sound great. I'll do a little bit of HTML work for you, whatever. And then you pay the person uh, by sending money to their PayPal account. But then what do they do with it? They can't pay their rent. They can't put it into their bank accounts. It's it's literally as fake internet money as you can get. Right. With the exception that it's you know obviously backed by this great company in the United States, but for someone that lives in El Salvador, it's kind of useless. So, you know, we look at that and say, you know, fintech has failed so much of Latin America uh, and the rest of the world um, because it's mostly built on top of banks. So, you know, you want to, you have a PayPal account, great, connect it to your bank, and then you can access all of the banking things in your country and all of the cool digital fintech things. But what if you don't, what if you live in a country that doesn't have good banks or the banks don't want to connect to PayPal or PayPal doesn't want to connect to your bank? Well, then what do you do? And so we think Bitcoin fixes that. Let's give you a dollar balance. Let's give you a Bitcoin balance. The Bitcoin will interconnect with all things Bitcoin. The dollar balance, even if we can't connect it to your bank because your bank won't let us, we'll try, but we'll always give you the option of cashing out of our ATM. And so then that is a complete product, dollars, Bitcoin, and you know financial freedom. Um, so that's, that's, that's our angle in terms of like, what do we want to do? I, I think some of the economists are starting to get it. So I look at Ken Rogoff, who has said like, first of all, he's not a huge fan of Bitcoin, but you know, he does think that it, it, it might be better in failed states. And I think he said it was conceivable that it would be, would have some use in a dystopian future. And I look at that statement and I was like, okay, so he gets that Bitcoin is better than Venezuelan bolivars, Lebanese pounds or Zimbabwe dollars. Okay, I agree. I'm going to agree with him. It is better than all of those currencies. He thinks it's a hedge against some dystopian future where we're all living in Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm going to agree with that. Um, he otherwise thinks it's useless because you know it's so far, like so far away from like the value of a dollar. Okay, so I, I take him as like a level one. Level two would be Steve Hankey, who says. I mean, I mean, he came out, I mean, he really hated Bitcoin. He's like, it's completely going to collapse the economy of El Salvador, completely. Mm -hmm. And his theory on that was the Salvadoran people might get tricked into putting all their money into Bitcoin. And then there'll be no dollars left in the country. And then the rug is going to get pulled out from underneath them. Like Bitcoin will go to zero and then the country will just completely destroyed because there's no dollars left. There's only Bitcoin and Bitcoin will become worthless. 
And I was like, okay, I think I agree with you up until the point where like Bitcoin goes to zero, because if all those people own Bitcoin, I, they seem like the smartest people in the world, not the dumbest. Right. Uh, and so I have a lot more faith in them than I do necessarily in, in you, but I'm going to, you know, that's sort of level two thinking. And then Hillary Clinton came out last week and said, maybe it was two weeks ago that like Bitcoin has the potential to destabilize the entire world. Like it will reduce the reliance on the dollar. Yes. And I mean, she said some really awful things too. But and you're like, you're like, woohoo! <laughs> I, I was like, exactly. I mean, I think you that's why we're here. Right. So like level one was, oh, Bitcoin is better than uh, Venezuelan boulevards. Level two, people might get tricked into using Bitcoin and then it might go to zero. And then level three thinking, and I love this, was like, well, what if the rug doesn't get pulled out from underneath the Bitcoiners? People are tricked into thinking that it's good. And it turns out to be good. And then we've lost control of the dollar. I mean, we've lost control of, you know, the people because we control the dollar. Yes. And I was like, I think she finally gets it. So like, I think that's what's going to happen in the world. And I want to be a part of it. Like, I don't think it's going to destroy nations. Mm -hmm. I think it might save nations who don't have good access to financial markets and who are afraid that like their access to dollars is tenuous or people's access to dollars are tenuous. You know, there's a lot of freedom that comes from having dollars totally accessible to you. And I think in some respects, like my unlimited use of dollars, because I have a very nice bank account and the fact that I'm a US citizen, but I think even more than being a US citizen, the fact that I have a very nice US dollar bank account is the greatest freedom in the world. Yeah. Not everyone has that. So if you can't have that, what's the next best thing? It's unlimited access to Bitcoin. And so if you can have both of those, that's extremely powerful. And if you have, you know, if you can have access to the Bitcoin, that that can be extremely powerful too. So I think that Hillary Clinton is right. I think that Steve Rogoff uh, or Ken Rogoff is right. I think Steve Hankey is right. Like they're thinking around what, what what can Bitcoin do is in fact right. Like mm -hmm. it could undermine the US dollar. And when they say that, they say, you know, that could be bad because then the IMF and the World Bank and the US can't control that, com that country. Um, they think of it as, you know, the US can't bail them out, but I think of it in the converse, like, well, you know, neither can the US control them and we can't, uh, shut them off from from Bitcoin. They can shut themselves off, from sure. Bitcoin, but they can't shut it off. So I think that's like you know that's the world that we seem to be like moving into. Um, and I think you know Athena can play a role in opening up economic freedom for people. We have no interest in like undermining you know the stability of the world, mm -hmm. but we don't see it so much as undermining the stability of the world so much as offering freedom to people who you know have not had a lot of economic sovereignty in their lives it undermines so their authority it for us. yeah it undermines their authority undermines their control and it's interesting that steve hankey would say we have to be careful and there's this concern that bitcoin could go from its current price to zero without in the same breath or like the bitcoiners would say well 
since the US dollar came off the gold standard, it's gone from 100 to 6 because we've lost 94% of its value. So we just have to depend on how we couch uh, and, and have the conversation. Uh, that's exactly right. I mean, the, the dollar loses value. I mean, I, I was, someone showed me on Twitter the other day that the, like the number of hours a minimum wage person has to work to earn a thousand bricks is virtually unchanged. I mean, I think they were making the comparison that it actually takes you like four more hours uh, to earn, you know, a thousand bricks than it did, you know, in 1770. Um, but like the value of a brick uh, mostly has not changed in terms of, you know, the amount of you know human labor required for that. Um, along the way, the dollar value of a thousand bricks, uh, you know, has changed dramatically. Yes. And so, you know, it takes a wheelbarrow full of pennies to buy a thousand bricks today and where it didn't cost nearly that much, you know, hundred years ago. So, so anyway, no, that, that was like the interesting point that I was, uh, I, that I saw on Twitter um, no, with respect great. to the value of the dollar. It's a great perspective. And so let's just go back real quickly to uh, El Zante. Originally, you said you had a friend that received a donation in Bitcoin. And I think from my perspective, I, you know, I see that philanthropy and I, I've got a story that's too long for this podcast, but how it took 45 days to send a donation from a Catholic parish here in Elmhurst to a remote area in India. And it is a amazing story to be honest with you, a true story uh, of sending about $12,000 from Elmhurst to India, to an orphanage. The obstacles and the cost involved and the clunkiness of the whole thing, like for me, Bitcoin fixes that. Absolutely. Would you say that, have you had any interesting, uh, you know, other conversations that had to do with philanthropy and uh, non-for-profits or NGOs that are, you know, a friend of our family is in Peru, 85% of the entrepreneurs are female, single moms for the most part. The other 15% are guys, who knows what they're doing, right? But women are definitely, the entrepreneurial energy behind what's going on in South America from my, from just one little perspective. Do you see the same thing or do you see philanthropy, you know, picking up and, you know, any other interesting conversations there? Yeah, I think that for, for early Bitcoiners, just like early people into every new technology, whether that was railroads, radio, television, computers, high frequency trading, uh, whatnot. I mean, I think there's an evolution of, you know, what is the life purpose of someone who who gets into those things? And so I think initially, you know, your focus is, how do I understand this technology? How do I use this technology to make money? And then how do I use this technology to make enormous amounts of money? And then that's followed by how do I, you know, use my great wealth to, you know, change the world. Mm -hmm. And I think Bitcoin at 13 years old is starting to get into that phase of, you know, how do we as a community, like give back to the world in interesting ways. And so, yeah, in El Zante, that was someone anonymous, we still don't know, mm -hmm. who wanted to help create a circular economy with Bitcoin, because he's a Bitcoiner, wanted to, you know, spread the word of Bitcoin, but at the same time, help people's lives. And I think that was like a really interesting way of, you know, how do you, how do you do something with what you love, Bitcoin, and also, you know, use it to improve people's lives um, in a really interesting way. So, you know, we don't know who the person behind, you know, the Bitcoin Beach donation was. Mike Peterson knows. He's, you know, he, he obviously runs the charity, but I, 
at this point, I almost don't care. It it's, doesn't matter. It's such a beautiful thing that he's done and that he's ended up helping millions of people. And I think if anything, like that was the most creative use of sort of charity donations that just sparked an enormous, you know, just throwing one pebble into the pond, seeing the ripples, but then somehow that turns into a tsunami. I think it was just so magical. So yes. you know, kudos to him for thinking that. And if he knew that was going to happen the entire way, like, you know, he's a genius. But I, I think that we'll see more of this, um, you know, because we are, we're approaching, you know, the, I don't know how many billionaires have been minted from Bitcoin, but I think that those that have been in it for a long time are starting to think about like, how do they give back to the world? Mm -hmm. Um because I think that's important. I mean, I think that there's something to be said about, you know, just the capital accumulation by, you know, you've made good capital allocation decisions in your life. And that has helped numerous people directly because you've provided a good, you've provided for a positive business environment. You start a company, a bunch of people are employed. That's obviously good for them. A bunch of people may, you know, become shareholders along the way. That's good for them. Obviously it's economically productive. Uh, to be a good capital allocator and manager like that. But I do think that at some point people do say, you know, how can I do good in the world that goes beyond just, you know, sort of capital allocation. I've always despised, I've always hated the uh, the Lamborghini Lambo conversation with Bitcoin. It just, I mean, it's like the greatest technology of the world to be able to lift the, you know, billions of people out of poverty. And you're just talking about this, like this is it. But listen, listen, we're, we're kind of running up to about an hour, Eric. Is there anything? Well, two things. One, I want to say is that uh, I really appreciate you, the artwork you have behind you, Josie Bellini. And we, you know what the truth is, Eric? We know how this is going to end. Okay? We do. Uh, which is super exciting. Uh, so would you, anything you want to you know, do, any kind of shameless self-promotion, anything you want to share with us as we go into the closing uh, minutes or so here? No, Bill, I mean, thank you for having me on. Super excited, you know, to continue the good work. Uh, that you and I started, you know, and we want to be involved in. I mean, Bitcoin's going to change the world. Uh, and, you know, the small, small role that, you know, I can play in that. I'm excited to, to keep doing it. So, Amen. Awesome. Eric, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I know you are just strung out from spending weeks and weeks and weeks in El Salvador and getting this thing launched. So uh, the tan looks great on you. The color looks good. <laughs> Um, and so keep up the good work. And I, I hope to be able to uh, grab you out of your schedule, maybe again, when a few more things develop, because for me, this is really an interesting uh, and worthwhile conversation to have. Sounds good. All right, no Eric, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. The information is believed to be factual and up-to-date, but we do not guarantee its accuracy and should not be regarded as a complete analysis of the subjects discussed. And answers to questions do not involve the rendering of personalized investment advice and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation of any offer to buy or sell the securities, forms of payment, cryptocurrencies, options, or strategies mentioned. It is not intended to be a substitute for specific individuals 
individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine what is suitable for you, consult a professional advisor before implementing any information presented to discuss profit, loss, and risk. Investment advisory services are offered through Senecal Capital Management, LLC, a state-registered investment advisor. The firm and investment advisor representatives of Senecal Capital Management only conduct business where they are properly registered. Registration with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any state securities authority does not imply a certain level of skill or training.